Good morning to everyone. It is great to be here and be able to worship God together. We've had such a wonderful weekend. The Arise Spiritual Growth Seminar has been fantastic, and the lessons have been fantastic. The attendance has been wonderful. So many folks have done so much to help and make it possible, and we thank you. We hope that you have also enjoyed the events of the weekend and want to encourage you to go ahead and mark in your calendars February the 25th through the 28th, 2021. Lord willing, we will have our fourth annual Arise uh, Spiritual Growth Seminar, and we will be studying uh, congregational growth next year. We'll be looking at different ways that the individual congregation can grow spiritually and work together. So mark that in your calendars, and we look forward to having you again with us next year. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. If you haven't already, we're going to be studying from 1 Samuel chapter, uh, the first three chapters, really, of 1 Samuel this morning. In these three chapters, we read about three men who were very, very different. Their names were Hophni, Phinehas, and Samuel. In fact, if you notice in 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse number 12, there are about 10 verses that contrast these three men, 10 verses that God has given us that seem to serve the purpose of jumping out at us like an LED sign on the highway to look and note that these three people couldn't be any more different. When we read about Samuel... We read about a man who was a judge and a prophet of God. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 11, the Bible tells us that Samuel was dedicated to the Lord's service even before his birth. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible tells us that the word of the Lord was rare, was scarce in those days, that there was no widespread revelation. But to this one young boy, Samuel, the Lord spoke and the Lord revealed himself And this chapter reveals to us the fact that even as a young boy, Samuel had favor with God and he uttered his first prophecy. And the Bible also tells us in passages like Psalm 99, verse 6 and 7, that Samuel is listed with those like Moses and Aaron as uh, those who called upon the Lord and called upon his name and worshipped and served him uh, faithfully. Those who are put forth as models and examples for us to follow. He is described in 1 Samuel 9 and verse number 6 as an honorable man. But then on the other hand, we have the two brothers, Hophni and Phinehas. These two brothers were the sons of Eli, who was the high priest. And 1 Samuel 2 and verse number 12 puts it very bluntly. It says, now the sons of Eli were corrupt and they did not know the Lord. The Bible tells us that they took advantage of God's people. They would uh, take advantage of God's people whenever they came to offer sacrifice. We'll look at it uh, more closely in just a couple of moments. They even took advantage of some of the women who were serving in the, in the uh, uh, tabernacle complex. They took advantage of God's people, and their sin was so very great that ultimately they played a role in Israel's defeat at the hand of the Philistines and the ultimate capture of the Ark of God. Samuel, Hophni, Phinehas, these men all three stand in perfect contrast. They couldn't be more different from one another. 
except they all had one thing in common. In fact, they share this commonality, not just between the three of them, but they share this commonality with every human being who's ever been born into this world, and that is that they had parents. And the Bible tells us something about their parents in these first two or three chapters of this book. Samuel's mother was Hannah, And we remember Hannah because she is a perfect and shining example of a godly woman who was deeply devoted to the Lord, who was sacrificial, who was submissive, who was prayerful, and who dedicated her son to the service of God. But then Hophni and Phinehas, their father, his name was Eli. Eli is the priest, the high priest, and he didn't do what was expected of him. The Bible tells us that he did nothing to stop the wickedness of his sons. In fact, it'll go even further to tell us that not only did he not do anything to stop them, not only did he have no positive influence with them, but he actually was a partaker of the wickedness that they engaged in. And uh, so he was a partaker of their evil. Now this morning I want us to stop for a moment and I want us to think about the differences not only between Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel, but I want us to notice the differences between Hannah and between Eli. These three very different men had two very different parents, and I don't think that it's any coincidence that the characteristics that we see uh, in these parents are mirrored in the characteristics of their children. Now certainly I realize it is the case that all people, children are born into this world and they all have their own free will. They all have the ability to choose. And I also realize that it is no guarantee that a child is necessarily going to mimic or follow the direction or path that his parents lay out for them in word and in deed for better or for for worse. I recognize those things. But I also recognize that it is very true that parents have a great impact upon their children. I also recognize that it is very true that we have these sayings like, that boy is the spitting image of his son, or you remind me of your mom at that age. We say these things because to a very large degree they're true. And the way that we carry out our lives as parents and even as grandparents and maybe aunts and uncles and others, as we have influence on children as they grow, that we're going to impact them in one way or another. And so I also recognize that most of the time, parents who tend to follow in the footsteps of someone like Eli tend to have children who follow in the footsteps of Hophni and Phinehas. Whereas parents who tend to follow in the footsteps of someone like Hannah tend to have children who follow in the footsteps of Samuel. So we want to look at these parents. We want to compare and contrast their lives. And we want to stop and ask ourselves some questions at the end of our study about what characteristics we see in Samuel that maybe came from Hannah and what characteristics we see in Hophni and Phinehas that maybe came from Eli and what impact these families and these parents and these homes had not only on the generations of their own family but really had on the entirety of the nation of Israel. Let's start with Hannah. The Bible tells us about Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that basically she was a woman who seemed to have it all. 
If you are a young Jewish woman living in this time of the Old Testament and you grow up and you write a list, here is what might be the most, here's the perfect life. This is what, this is everything that I want from life. And when I pray to God every night, these are the things that I'm going to ask. You might look at Hannah, at least at the beginning, and you might say she checks most, if not all the boxes. Hannah had a husband who had a good social standing. And that would be brought out in chapter 1, verse number 1. You notice how his line is spelled out for us, and there's a reason for that. Hannah had a husband who genuinely loved her. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 5. The Bible says that her husband, Elkanah, that he gave Hannah a double portion because he loved, he loved her. Verse number 8 He asked her the question at the end of the verse, why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? He genuinely loved her. He genuinely had deep affection for her. And he also was someone who perhaps was a man of moderate wealth. Otherwise, he couldn't have been able to support two wives. But most importantly, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that Hannah was married to a man who was devoted to God. Elkanah went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 3. So here we go. We have the boxes and they're all checked. We have a man who has some money. We have a man who has good social standing. We have a man who genuinely is devoted to God and a man who genuinely loves this woman, his wife, Hannah. She had it all. But there are two problems. Number one, she didn't actually have Elkanah, her husband, she shared him. And she shared him with a woman whose name is Penina, spelled out in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 2. And Penina actually was the enemy of Hannah. Really, she is the enemy of the story, at least in some ways, because the Bible tells us that Penina has children and Hannah does not. And Penina took every opportunity, it seems, to remind Hannah of that problem to cause Hannah more grief and to make her life miserable. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says that her rival, Penina, that she provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. This is no accident or no incidental problem that's being caused. This is intentional. And so Hannah deals with this on a regular, on a daily basis. And this, of course, is problem number two, or it at least ties into it. Problem one is she didn't actually have Elkanah, she shared him. Problem number two is that she had no children. 1 Samuel 1 and verse 2 tells us that. She had no children. 1 Samuel 1 and verse 5 tells us that the Lord had closed her womb. And of course you remember from passages like Genesis chapter 29 and verse 32 that for a young Jewish woman, a Jewish wife, this is a major problem. It's, it's shameful and it's seen as a curse. It's seen as if there's some kind of problem. She's done something wrong, perhaps, because she's not been able. The Lord has not blessed her with children. But here's the beautiful thing about Hannah. When we see the struggle and the heartbreak and the difficulty that she had, what we see about that is that those things drove her closer to God. They did not drive her away from him. And it's a great testament to her character. So often in life, we struggle with difficulty, and too often it causes us to question God and wonder what we're doing wrong instead of, like Hannah, turning our attention to him and bowing ourselves before him and simply relying upon his grace and upon his mercy and upon his goodness to see us through. What do we see about Hannah and how she dealt with her situation? 
First of all, Hannah is a woman of worship. First Samuel 1 and verse number 7, she is there with her husband year by year going up to the house of the Lord. She is a woman of prayer. And this may be the greatest thing, or at least the most memorable thing about Hannah and her story in the first two chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 10, the Bible tells us that she was in bitterness of soul, and so she prayed to the Lord, and she wept in anguish. And it's in this occasion which she'll pray to God and ask him to bless her with a son. And then in chapter 2, verse 1 and following, we have this wonderful prayer of Hannah that we think about and study on a regular basis It's a prayer in which she expresses her joy and her faith in God. It's a prayer in which she expresses the holiness of God and the power of God and the ability that God has to provide and even to vindicate her and to defeat her enemies. It's a prayer alone that is worthy of our study and a prayer that tells us something about what kind of a woman she was. Hannah is a woman of submission You study 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 9 to 18, and one thing interesting that you'll note is that five times she presents herself as God's servant. She humbles herself before him, and she says, I am your servant, and I, as your servant, am bowing myself before you and asking you for your mercy and for you to bless me in this way. And she's even a woman of great sacrifice. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. For this child I prayed, she says, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. Imagine, here is a woman whose rival gives her problems, maybe on a daily basis, reminding her, the Lord has not blessed you with children. She prays to God and says, God, please bless me with a son. Please bless me with a child. And the Lord answers that prayer, and she keeps her promise to God. God, if you'll bless me with this child, I promise that I'll dedicate this child to your service, and he'll serve you all the days of of his life. Can you imagine the sacrifice, the submission, and the faith in God that must have been required for her to be able to make that promise and fulfill it? Hannah was a woman of worship. She was a woman of prayer, a a woman of submission, a woman of sacrifice. And Hannah was rewarded because of her good character because of her faithfulness. But now contrast her with the unfaithfulness of Eli. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 27 and 28, there's an interesting thing that's said as the uh, narrative of the context begins to shift over now. Then a man of God came to Eli, and here's what he says. Thus says the Lord, Did not I clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and in Pharaoh's house? And did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did not I give to the house of your father all of the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offerings, which I've commanded you, or commanded rather, in my dwelling place? And why do you honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? You see, the thing that we need to see about Eli is that Eli is entrusted with the highest honor. Levi, or excuse me, Eli, as a descendant of the tribe of Levi, is privileged to serve as high priest. And it is a privilege. Not everybody has the ability to do it. Not everybody had the privilege to do it. But Eli takes that privilege and Eli squanders it. 
And if you go back up in the chapter and you begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse number 12, you see that as a part of his squandering, what Eli does is he takes the service that is in his charge and he entrusts it to his sons. And in 1 Samuel 2 verse 12, the Bible describes them as being wicked and corrupt and not knowing the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 13 to 16, the Bible tells us that what the sons of Eli would do is that when the people of God came to the tabernacle to offer their sacrifice, that they would walk around with a three-pronged fork and when they saw the people uh, preparing the, the meat and the food to be offered, they would take their fork and they would just plunge it down into the bowl and they would take out whatever they wanted and the people would protest and say, listen, we've not yet given the Lord what is his. And they would say, you'll give it to me now. I'm paraphrasing. You'll give it to me now or we'll force you to give it to, to us. You, you, you can't fight it. They stole the Lord's sacrifice. They stole what belonged to them. In fact, look at verse 17. The Bible goes so far as to say that they hated, they abhorred the offering of the Lord. Can you imagine Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, the priestly family. And the Bible says that instead of helping God's people worship God, they stole from God and they took advantage of God's people and they hated the very thing that they had been in charge to oversee and to help the children of Israel do. But they went even further because in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse number 22, the Bible tells us that they even turned the house of God into a house of sexual immorality. Now, you might be wondering what all this has to do with Eli, because after all, our topic is two very different parents, not uh, three very different sons. Well, think about Eli and what he has to do with all of this. He's probably someone who we might describe as self-indulgent. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse number 11 describes him as being a very large man who died, who fell over and died, and so there's some evidence that he was a very self-indulgent type of character. But one thing we can say with absolute certainty is that he definitely tolerated his son's wickedness. In fact, as we read from 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse number 22, we find that the Bible will say to Eli, as God speaks to him, not only is it the case that he did not stand against his sons, but he actually assisted them. He had guilt along with them in their sin. Look at 1 Samuel 2, verse 22. He heard everything that his sons did to all of Israel. He heard how they laid with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? Because I hear of the dealings, for, uh, your evil dealings from all the people. And uh, he, says, um, he says, no, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. We keep going down, though, in verse number 27. And here's what the man of God says to Eli. As we read just a moment ago. He says, I have given you the ability. I've given you the honor of serving as priest. I chose your father. I chose your line. And look at verse 29. He says, you're kicking at my son. Notice, not your sons. He says, you're doing it. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I commanded? Why do you honor your sons more than you honor me? We keep reading through this context and we learn that he shared in their sins. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 though in verse 17 to 21 we see something that at least to my estimation is even more striking than what the Bible tells us in chapter 2. Between the middle of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 3 what happens is that the word of the Lord comes to Samuel 
And because the word of the Lord was scarce in that time, Samuel at first didn't understand what was happening. Maybe you remember this story. God is speaking to him and Samuel first thinks it's Eli and so he goes to Eli a couple of times and finally Eli realizes what's going on and he says, when you hear the voice again, you say, speak Lord for your servant hears. And so he does. And the Lord speaks to him. And the Lord says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring a curse upon Eli and upon his house because of his wickedness. But zoom in on verse number 17. This is Eli speaking to Samuel. And here's what he asks. What's the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please don't hide it from me. God do to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. And so Samuel told him everything. He hid nothing from him and he said, listen to this, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. And then the Lord appeared again to him in Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you notice in verse 18 to 21 who's not mentioned? Samuel is a prophet and everybody knows he's a prophet. And God appears to Samuel and God speaks to Samuel, but he doesn't speak to Eli and he doesn't do anything with Hophni and Phinehas. But do you notice something else in verse 17? Put yourselves for a moment in the shoes of Eli. You've just been told from this young boy who's been given to your service by his mother that the Lord spoke to him and said that the Lord is going to bring ruin on your family and your response is not going to be, Lord, what do I need to do to make this right? You ever thought about that? Can you imagine receiving that kind of news and not falling down on your face, on your hands, on your knees and pleading before the Lord and asking the Lord, what do I need to do to change my life and to correct this course and to make all of these things right? That's not what Eli does. He says, well, let the Lord do what he wants. It's amazing to me. And the best thing that I can say about it is that Samuel, uh, not, only, not only is he someone who seems to be self-indulgent, but definitely tolerates the wickedness and participates, uh, by ver- uh, therefore, in the wickedness of his sons, but he also seems to be somebody who's completely indifferent to all of it. Whatever happens, it doesn't matter. Isn't it interesting that this is the man who is suspicious of this godly woman, Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12 to 14? Hannah comes to pray before God in all of her sorrow and all of her trouble. She begins to plead before God, and the Bible tells us that Eli looked upon her, and Eli thought that she was drunk. What a stark contrast. Here we have a man who has sons and who's been given the privilege of serving as priest, and he and his sons are abusing it. And he's looking down his nose at a woman who only wants to serve God and only wants to be blessed by God and makes a pledge and a promise to give to God this blessing of a son and a child if God will only grant her prayer. So summarize them and consider the differences between the two. We have Hannah who is greatly devoted to God and wants desperately to have a son. She promised the Lord that she would dedicate her son to his service if he would graciously allow her to just have a son. Her great distress and her desire drove her closer to God, not further away from him. And her prayer of rejoicing and thanksgiving shows her high regard for God and her dedication to his service. And then there's Eli who did nothing to stop the drunken rabble-rousing of his sons, yet was suspicious of Hannah, whom he thought to be intoxicated. 
God promised to cut off the house of Eli because of the sin that it produced. And ultimately, Israel is defeated and the ark is taken. And Eli falls over dead upon the hearing of the news. Ichabod is in Israel because the glory of God departs. And it all has a connection to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Now, to bring this all to a summary and apply it to ourselves, we think about these parents, and listen, there are a lot of things that are going on in these first three or four chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, but here's one of them. The life and the future of a nation of the nation of Israel takes on two completely different paths in these four chapters based on the character of these three men, Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel. Hophni and Phinehas are in charge when Israel is defeated by the Philistines, when the ark of God is taken, and when God pronounces Ichabod, the glory has departed from Israel. Whereas Samuel, Samuel is the one who is going to be given the charge of taking the nation of Israel and veering them back in the right direction, taking them back to God. This nation takes on different directions based on these three men and the character of these three men is so completely different. And I think that we can argue, at least in part, that the character is so different because the character of Hannah and Eli is so different. There is an old African proverb that says, the ruin of a nation begins in the homes of its people. Confucius taught the strength of a nation is derived from the integrity of his homes. Sometimes we say, as goes the home, so goes the nation. Sometimes we also say, and it's also true, as goes the home, so goes the church. Think for just a moment about the kind of home that Eli and his sons must have had. What do you suppose went on in the homes of Hophni and Phinehas with their wives and with their children? I think we could say that Eli and Hophni and Phinehas had homes and sons that were religious, but also completely godless. We talked this morning in Bible class, at least for a moment, about Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and following, and how in that chapter, as Jesus contrasts the righteousness, a true righteousness rather, with the pseudo-righteousness of the Pharisees, he talks about tithing, and he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting, and he tells the people as he preaches the sermon, he says, listen, when you do these three things, you don't do it like they do it. Well, why? Was there anything wrong with tithing and Uh, fasting and praying. Of course not. There wasn't anything wrong with it. But it wasn't the fact that there was anything wrong with tithing and fasting and praying that was the problem. The problem was that their heart was in the wrong place. The problem was that they were going through all of the motions. They were going through all of the trappings. But listen, trappings don't equal obedience and dedication. And that's why Jesus said, do not your acts of righteousness to be seen before men, because that's going to be your reward. It doesn't matter how hard we work to make a robot look like a human being. It doesn't matter how much money we put into it. It doesn't matter how lifelike they look. A robot will never be a human being no matter how hard we try to make them one. And a person who strives to go through the motions of being a faithful child of God without actually ever putting their heart into it and actually ever being dedicated to him in his service and doing it out of love and out of a strong desire to please the Lord... That person, no matter how hard they try to make the motions and the action look right, they'll never be able able to be truly who God wants them to be. Now imagine growing up in a home like that. Imagine what impact a parent like Eli or even like Hophni and Phinehas might have if if they have a home and they raise children where their children can see that, you know, mom and dad, they go through the motions and they say the right things, but we see them at home and we know that really they're two different people. There's the Sunday mom and dad and then there's the Monday through Saturday mom and dad and they don't equal the same. 
We hear what our parents tell us to do, and we hear that they tell us that we ought to do this, but then we see them do something completely and totally different. Tell me that it's not possible that uh, a parent who does that kind of thing might influence their children in in a negative way, in a wrong way. Tell me it's not possible that a parent who follows in the footsteps of Eli and is seemingly indifferent and has no real positive influence over their children because they forfeited, tell me that that parent is not going to somehow uh, have a a way of, uh, have a means to influence their children to be something like Hophni and Phinehas, but then turn it around. The Bible tells us about Hannah that when she and Elkanah would travel every year like they always did to worship God, even after Samuel had been given to God for, the, for his service, that she would come and she would see her son and she would bring him a new garment uh, every year, new clothing. There's no question, there's no question that Elkanah and Hannah, that they had a godly home that honored the Lord and they gave him their best. There's no question that for the about three years that Hannah would have had Samuel weaning him, that she did everything that she could to influence him in the right way. Again, children are children. They're free moral agents. They all make their own decisions. We recognize that, but we also recognize the fact that parents have an influence on their children and that these parents that we're looking at in 1 Samuel couldn't have been any more different. And so... I'm not sure that it's coincidence that their children were any different. Here's a few questions that we want to ask in closing. I want to ask this question, and I invite you just to percolate on it and think about it. What responsibility do these two parents hold for the outcome that their sons provoked? I think about a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 1, where the Apostle Paul says, Imitator, follow me as I follow Christ. One of the major differences between the first century world and our own is that in the first century and even in the time of the Old Testament, whenever, we ta- whenever they talked about the relationship or the impact that a teacher would have on his student, it wasn't just about the student going to school and listening to the teacher and then leaving when the school day was over and then just kind of blocking them out of their mind. The real desire and the measuring stick for the success of a teacher was whether or not his student would actually begin to mimic him. In fact, I'm told that there was an old Jewish blessing that sometime would be given where they might say something like this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the point of it is, may you follow your teacher and may you mimic your teacher so closely that it's hard to tell the difference between them and you. Maybe that's what Paul had in mind when he wrote by inspiration, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 1, imitate or follow me as I follow Christ. May you follow me so closely that you can't tell the difference between the two. Maybe that's what Peter had in mind when the Holy Spirit inspired him in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21 to write about the fact that Jesus had suffered for us and left us an example so that we should follow in his footsteps. Our lives to mimic his so that the world looks at us and they can't tell the difference between us and our Savior. Titus chapter 2 verse 1 and 10 talks about the older men and the older women teaching and instructing and influencing the younger men and the younger women. Let me ask you a question. Do these same principles fit within the confines of the relationship between a parent and their children? Do parents begin to, uh, do children mimic their parents? Do we say that boy is the spitting image of his father for no reason? Isn't it the case that often when we see children grow up in a home that we begin to see uh, we begin to see how they take some of the characteristics for better or for worse of their parents and they begin to mimic those things with that being the case 
ask the question again, what responsibility do these two parents hold for the outcome that their sons provoked? Here's another one. When your children look at you, do they see Hannah or Eli? Why or why not? When we look in the mirror of God's word and we begin to let God's word expose us for who we really are and we take an honest evaluation of ourselves per 2 Corinthians 13, 5, can we say, I see more of Hannah in me as a parent or I see more of Eli in me as a parent? How often do we reflect on these examples and the instruction that God gives us so that we can be the kind of parents who raise children like Samuel and not the kind of parents who raise children like Hophni and Phinehas. Everyone's different. These children were different. These parents were different. Our children will be different. We're different as parents. But one thing that we can say with, with absolute certainty is that God has a plan God has a plan not only for our lives, but God has a plan and a pattern for raising and for rearing our children. And um, it can be absolutely sure that if we'll raise our children according to the pattern and the plan that God has laid out in his, in his word, even though our children are going to grow up and make their own choices, and sometimes those choices are not good, we can know, we can know, that we, to the best of our ability, have done the best that we can to influence them and try to point them in the direction that God would have them to go. We give them what they need. We give them what God wants us to give them and pray and trust that they'll make the decisions that will honor God. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation this morning, and it may be that there's someone here that has a desire to respond. Maybe you're not a child of God today. Maybe you've not yet obeyed the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. The Lord's invitation is open to you. And the Bible says that God's desire 